scientism is uh, the very widespread and erroneous belief that science is all the real knowledge there is. In other words, that anything that cannot be understood through science really doesn't count as knowledge. Um, and my talk, talk was entitled Monopolizing Knowledge because in a certain sense that's what scientism tries to do. Well, scientism is, an ex is a word that's used to describe the view very simply that science is all the real knowledge there is. That's slight, slightly an overstatement, but that's the simplest definition. In other words, the, uh, it's the idea that if you want to find out anything in this world, you should use the methods of the natural sciences. You know, we partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science and we think that the world you know, should know it and, and the platforms themselves also do. Um, but again, it's, it's, it is, um, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge that I think all sectors of society need to be very active in. Is that called scientism when you, you believe so much in the science you've been taught that you refuse to believe something else and it becomes your religion in a way? Yes, scientism is where people turn science into a kind of religion. It becomes a kind of dogmatic belief system. Um, the irony is that a lot of people think that religion is dogmatic and science is free thinking. But actually, in my experience, some of the most dogmatic people I know are people who've made science into a kind of religion. Roger, I want to uh, ask you about an article that you wrote that we published not long ago in the New Atlantis on another subject. It's called Scientism in the Arts and the Humanities. Now, people know what science is. Could you explain the term scientism? Yes, uh, uh, science um, actually is harder to explain than scientism, uh, but I assume that we have the idea of scientific method as a method whereby we uh, advance towards the explanation of things through collecting data and experiment, uh, through trial and error, through forming hypotheses and so on. And I think we're all familiar with this method in one form or another, although it's very difficult to put in words exactly what it, con it consists, consists in. But scientism, in my understanding, is the pretense of scientific method when addressing questions which are not themselves scientific. They're not questions about uh, the nature of physical reality or how you explain the phenomena that, um, the, uh, or the data that you collect. Uh, now, uh, there are plenty of such questions as we know. I mean, the question, what should I do in a dilemma, is quite obviously not a scientific question. I don't solve it by consulting uh, any theory, I, I ask myself what would be the right thing to do and I, and I perhaps enter into dialogue with others who give me advice. Uh, so that, that's a very simple example of a non-moral question, a non-scientific question because it's moral. But there are a lot of other questions uh, which we don't immediately think to be scientific but we hope that maybe there'll be a science that will answer them for us. Uh, for, for instance, the, the, the question of you know, what, what is the meaning of Michelangelo's David? 
an incredible lump of stone in which so much strength seems to be concentrated in one little part of it uh, and that incredible concentration in the face. So, um, we all know this is a very meaningful thing, but we haven't got any clear method for understanding exactly how we find that meaning. So people come along with with uh, pseudo-scientific theories, you know, like structuralism or something, say that you know the, the meaning of it is embedded in its structure, and here are the principles, you know, uh, uh, which look like uh, you know, sort of uh, some some form of, of computer code, whereby we extract uh, from the appearance of the of the sculpture its meaning for us. It might come to a surprise to most people that one of the most dangerous worldviews one can hold is scientism. The failing of science is not really about the scientific method. It is about a largely unrecognized epistemology that developed as a result of the successes of science. This faulty epistemology can be called scientism, and we should make a sharp distinction between science and scientism. Science is a method of inquiry, and the knowledge acquired by that method the scientific method involves hypothesizing, experimenting, observing, and drawing conclusions. Central to the method of science is that no theory is ever considered final. All theories are subject to scrutiny and re-examination, and it is assumed that all will eventually be proven false by a more comprehensive theory. Scientism, on the other hand, is the belief that the methods of science are superior to any and all other methods of determining truth. Science believes things because they have been observed to be true. Scientism believes things because science says they are true. Most of us are guilty of scientism to some extent. We hear about things having been scientifically proven and we assume that means they must be true. We didn't do the experiments. We didn't look up the results. We didn't analyze the data. We simply assumed that if the science proved it, it must be true. This epistemological theory is often called Ockman's razor and it states that whatever there is two theories that explain the same observation, the one that requires the least number of assumptions is true. In other words, when looking for truth, we should always look for the simplest explanation possible. And when it comes to biblical interpretation, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. As humanity emerged from the Middle Ages, a battle began to rage between the fathers of the church and the new intellectuals of the Enlightenment. That struggle continues today, even though it had seemed for a time that the debate was over and that the science was settled. We'll restore science to its rightful place and wield technology's wonders. Scientists are in agreement. Scripture and science are not reconcilable. Less commonly known among Christians, it seems, is that the Bible agrees with this assessment. While the world says that it's scripture in error, God would beg to differ. The issue is that science is no longer science. True science is simply the scientific method or empirical data. What is commonly called science these days is actually just the religion of the world, full of fabrication and an anti-God agenda. The problem for the church today is that many Christians, fearing man rather than God, have bought into much of the counter-biblical doctrines of scientism. 
We do stand with the Bible on some issues, but only if we feel the safety of numbers. Some Christians only seem to need the support of other Christians, while others require the approval of the world. What God calls us to, however, is having absolutely no fear of man whatsoever and trusting the absolute authority of God's Word. God cannot lie. The debate is over. The science is settled. When scripture and science conflict, the shortest road to truth is believing scripture and investigating the claims of science. The evidence will always be there for anyone who will look objectively. It's when we allow the world to provide the lens through which we look that we lose our deception perception. Exposing scientism for what it is, uh, you have science and then you have non-science. Uh, and nowadays you have a lot of stuff that's masquerading as science and, and there's a force behind that. There is an adversary that we have in this, in this creation that sets about to lie about everything. It makes me realize that what the Bible warns us about, the deceiver, uh, <laughs> the deceiver is a lot more powerful than we, we, we thought. I think we've really underestimated what we've been warned about. To prove all things, I really think today, uh, especially today, we need to go as deep as we possibly can because we have the tools we, we have today and we, we're so much removed from the, the original languages of the Bible. Now one of the last things I ever thought I would uh, come to question would be science because I always consider myself a scientist uh, because of my constant involvement in meteorology and uh, any kind of earth science at all always just fascinated me. I have to say, I honestly have to say that I did not come to the realization that science was wrong uh, from my studies of the Bible and I'm actually kind of ashamed of that. I should have actually done the study, proven all things to see if science was correct with that because now that I was awakened to the fact that science was wrong about that and that the Bible contradicted what science was saying, I found many other things in the Bible that are actually contrary to what we've been taught. I see scientism as a spiritual agenda. I see it as a spiritual deception. Uh, it's something that has been put in place and masqueraded as fact and as reality when in fact most of the things that are paraded today um, are theories of men. The deception will, will pull you any direction and this is where scientism is, I think this is the whole purpose of scientism. I think there are dark forces behind it trying to pull people into what they think is logic and it's really, it's really speculation, it's really theory, it's not, it's not as concrete as everybody thinks it is. And uh, I, I, like I said, I think evolution has been thoroughly disproven. This is one of the most heated battles, this whole dating issue. Well, that's because time is at the foundation for everything evolutionary theory teaches. Look, just read this section right here. Geologists now use radioactivity to establish the age of certain rocks and fossils. This kind of data could have shown that the Earth is young. If that had happened, Darwin's ideas would have been refuted and abandoned. Instead, radioactive dating indicates the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. Plenty of time for evolution and natural selection to take place. Wow, it seems that the foundation of evolutionary theory sure depends on radiometric dating. Radiometric dating is used to support the belief that millions of years exist for evolution to happen. Yep, 
And like they said, the entire age of the Earth rests upon radiometric dating. It sure seems that they're putting a lot of faith in something that they can't actually test through direct observation. After all, plenty of assumptions go into these calculations. If it were to be disproved, their whole world view would seem to collapse. Without billions of years, you can't have biological evolution or geological evolution on Earth. Pretty epic, eh? So, based on their dating methods, they've come up with an age for each section of the geologic column that we find on the very next page. And based on that, they determine the age of the Earth to be about 4.5 billion years old. Actually, the age of the Earth is based on the dating of certain meteorites. They assume these meteorites formed at the same time as the Earth and that dating the meteorites will give us the age of the Earth. With that as a start, they then construct the ages of the layers in the column based primarily on the layers of volcanic ash and igneous rock. Rocks contain radioactive material called the parent element, or isotope, which decays into a non-radioactive stable product known as the daughter element, or isotope. Okay, I remember now. So, it's like the ice that slowly melts into the water. Yeah. And in the biology book, there's a chart here that shows potassium-40 decaying into argon-40. Okay, I see. So based on how we can measure it today, we assume that every 1.3 billion years, the amount of potassium-40 decreases by half. Right, a radioactive half-life. So when they discover a rock, they can measure the amount of parent material and the amount of daughter product, and using a chart like this, determine how old it is. So what's wrong with this method? <laughs> well, the methods measure only the amounts of isotopes in the rock. This is good science because it is observable and repeatable. It just gives the ratio of one element to another. But the age is an interpretation of those measurements, not an observation. And that interpretation assumes answers to all kinds of untested questions. What if the rock already had a daughter isotope in it from the very beginning? Or what if the rock gets contaminated? Or what if the rate of decay was rattled at some point in the past? What was the original ratio of parent to daughter isotope? One must assume no parent or daughter material was added or removed from the rock and that the rate of decay has always been constant over millions and millions of years. Are those assumptions wrong? I mean, if you start with false assumptions, you could get really bad dates. Well, many scientists think they are. And our textbooks don't even tell us about all the assumptions required to date the rock. But the most convincing evidence is all the crazy dates they get with radioisotope methods. I wonder if our teacher even knows all the assumptions behind radiometric dating. To be fair, there are lots of dates that agree with one another, but there are many examples of different mineral components of a rock giving very different radiometric dates, and very often different isotope systems give different ages for the same rock. So how can you know which one is the right age, if any? And then there are rocks we know the age of, where we watched it cool from lava, that give radically older dates. Really? Yeah. A lava flow in a volcano of the North Island of New Zealand that happened in 1954 was dated to be 3.5 million years old. Wow, that's really off. A volcanic bomb that blew out of Mount Stromboli in Italy in 1963 was dated to 2.4 million years old. And that dated much older than it really was. A 10-year-old rock from Mount St. Helens Lava Dome dated to 350,000 years and older. If we can't trust radiometric dating on rocks that we can see formed, then how can we trust radiometric dating on rocks that we can see formed? Rocks that supposedly formed a million years ago. I know, right? With all the overwhelming evidence that it doesn't work consistently, 
I'm surprised that they present it with such confidence in our textbooks. Jane, it goes back to the original quote we read in the book. If they're wrong about dating rocks, then the entire evolutionary theory crumbles to pieces. That's true. None of us were there to verify the assumptions. But God has provided a written account of history. And if you tally up all the chronologies and time cues in the Bible, the earth is about 6,000 years old. So we trust God's word instead of man's fallible dating methods. It's like it says in Job 38.4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. <laughs> it's like God saying, you weren't there. <laughs> kind of makes you think, doesn't it? Understand that our passion in this issue as we dive into the age of the earth, it's not about winning arguments or winning debates. It's rather about defending biblical authority to proclaim the gospel effectively. Standing on God's word from the beginning, unashamedly defending God's word and what it clearly says from the very first verse. That's where our passion comes from, so we can proclaim the gospel clearly. But why are the secularists so passionate about this particular idea? Because they really, really are. Well, I think here's one of the fundamental reasons. Because for evolutionism to be true, if you want to believe in that, you have to believe in some pretty unscientific things, like everything coming from nothing, and life from non-life, and information from non-thinking matter, order from disorder, etc., etc. And all those things, well, they violate known laws of science. So, if you still want to believe in evolution, then who is your hero that will come in and save the day for your theory from all this contrary observable evidence? And the answer is time. Time is their hero. And this is why the secularists are so passionate about this issue of the age of the earth. This Nobel Prize winner put it well, talking about evolution. He said this, time is in fact the hero of the plot. What we regard as impossible on the basis of human experience here is meaningless. Given so much time, watch this, the impossible becomes possible. The probable, the impossible probable, and the probable virtually certain. One only has to wait, and time itself performs the miracles. I hope you caught that at the end. They need a miracle to save their naturalistic theory. Time is their hero. But as we think about this, remember the story of the woman who kissed the frog and got the prince. Remember that story? Now, it doesn't happen that often in real life, at least I hope not, right? I mean, I'm kind of curious, how many of you ladies out there watching got your husband by kissing a frog? Hopefully nobody, okay? So it doesn't happen in real life, but according to evolution, this is a fundamental tenet in their thinking about history because in evolution, you see life came from non-life and evolved into the first simple single-celled organism. No such thing as a simple single-celled organism. But it evolved into a frog over time, and eventually it evolved into, well, the prince. It's the same fairy tale, with one little different, big different difference, and that is this. If the frog turns into the handsome prince very quickly, well, we know that's a fairy tale. But if the frog turns into the handsome prince very slowly, that is modern secular science. The difference? A super-duper magical ingredient called millions of years. Time itself performs a miracle, and that's why I believe is one of the main reasons the secularist and the secular world is so passionate about this issue of the age of the earth and the universe. So, how old do they think it is? Well, according to secular estimates, the Earth is roughly 4.5 billion years old, and the universe is roughly 14 billion years old. Now, that's based on man's word and man's interpretation. What if we start 
with a radical idea. We trust the eyewitness account of the Creator Himself. If we do that, the plain, straightforward reading of the biblical text is that God created in six days, roughly 6,000 years ago. And actually, the vast majority of the early church and church fathers believe that very clear reading of the biblical text up until the early 1800s. We'll see why that changed later on. But people say, but how do we know this? Does the Bible explicitly say the earth is 6,000 years old? And it does not. But it gives us something better. It gives us a birth certificate of sorts, a way to calculate the earth's age based on the data we find in God's Word. In particular, I'm talking about those biblical family trees in the Bible. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Those things you love to read at night when you're trying to go to sleep, they work better than melatonin, right? They'll just knock you out. And in some of those family trees, it gives you the age of the father when he has his son. And then it gives the son's age when he has his kid, and that, that kid's age when he has his kid, and it keeps going down the line. And we can add these ages up, it's not hard to do, to get a good general age for the earth. So doing that, we know from Adam to Abraham is roughly 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus is roughly 2,000 years. And from Jesus to, to us today is roughly 2,000 years. You put that all together, the earth is around 6,000 years of age. Or put another way, God made everything, the earth and the universe, roughly around 4,000 B.C. Now we don't think you could be exact and say 4,004 B.C. at 8 o'clock in the morning. But we do know that Adam was made in the afternoon because it was just before Eve. But other than that, you can't be dogmatic. And some would say, oh, okay, Brian, that makes sense, but then wait a minute. How do you know those days in Genesis are regular 24-hour days? That's a good question, and here's a good answer. In a word, exegesis. And this is how we're supposed to read God's word exegetically. It means to read out of. It means you read a text in its context because context determines meaning. And that's a common function of language. You know, it's, it's so often asked of us here at Answers in Genesis, well, couldn't God have used millions of years, or couldn't God have done this, or couldn't God have done that? And fundamentally, that's really not the right question. The question is, what did God clearly say he did? Does the word day mean in the context of Genesis chapter 1? Well, we've got to recognize most words have two or more meanings, and that's no, the word day is no exception to that. For example, look at this one sentence. Back in my father's day, it took 10 days to drive across America during the day. We've got the word day three different times with three different meanings. And you know it means something different each time it's used based on the context, right? Context determines meaning, common function of language. So here's the question. When does the context in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular here, always demand that the word day be understood as a literal 24-hour day like we now experience? Well, guys, anytime we see one of these contextual clues in the Bible, it's always a literal 24-hour day. So, anytime we see the word day, it's accompanied by a number, like on the first day or during the second day, over 400 times, it's always a literal 24-hour day. Anytime we see evening and morning, without the word day or with the word day, over 60 times, it's always a literal 24-hour day. Anytime we see night with day, over 50 times, it's always a literal 24-hour day. So when does the word day mean a regular 24-hour day? Well, remember, anytime we see any one of these contextual clues just one time, it's always a literal 24-hour day. So with that being said, 
How is it written in Genesis chapter 1? Is it clear or is it unclear based on the context surrounding the word day? And I'll let you decide as we look at this. Remember these clues. Here we go. Genesis chapter 1, the days of creation. Verse 5, first day of creation says this. So the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Clear or unclear? Yeah, for being honest, that's really, really clear, right? And notice for every day of creation, evening, morning, number, day. Evening, morning, number, day. Evening, morning, number, day. I think I'm noticing a theme there, right? Guys, think about it. It's literally contextual overkill. It's like God knew we would struggle with this later on. And he's given us some help, right? Multiple times, based on multiple contextual clues, these are regular 24-hour days. Plus, on top of this, there are lots of really good Hebrew words that mean an indefinite period of time that the author, who is God, could have used if that's what he wanted to say. He used none of those. He used the word day based on the context, a literal 24-hour day. And this idea is reaffirmed throughout Scripture by the biblical authors, by Jesus himself, and throughout other biblical uh, accounts and biblical books. For example, in Exodus 20.11, it says this, For in six days the Lord made heaven, the earth, the sea, and how much? All that is in them. The text is really, really clear. And actually God wrote that on a rock with his own finger. Right? The text is clear. So with that being said, if the text is so clear, then why don't so many Christians today, myself for a long time, if I'm confessing here, and so many Christian leaders today, why don't they believe what the text clearly says in context? And I think if we're being honest, because this idea of billions of years has so saturated our cultural thinking, even our own thinking, we've embraced it, not really recognizing we're really trusting man's ideas over God's clear word. Right? Wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. And keep that thought in mind foundationally. This is why so many secular scientists get this so wrong. So with that in mind, let me show you where the idea of millions of years actually originated from. This is really helpful. And we'll use this textbook to help us out on this. This textbook says this. That before radiometric dating was available, many people thought the earth was just thousands of years old. It's true. But then in the late 1700s, James Hutton. Did you realize, and this is a radical thought for most people today, that up until the early 1800s essentially, most scientists believed the Bible and thought the earth was only thousands of years old. It's true. So what did they discover at that particular time to change their minds, reject the Bible, and instead believe in millions of years? What did they find? Well, I'll give you some hints. They did not find any new rocks or any new fossils. They had the same rocks and the same fossils. It was not radiometric dating that changed their minds. That comes in the early 1900s and is wildly inconsistent. So what did they find to change their minds? The answer is nothing. At least nothing tangible. But what they did find was a new world view, a new way to interpret the same old evidence. Let me show you what happened. We continue in the textbook. But in the 1700s, James Hutton estimated the earth was much older. He used the principle of uniformitarianism. Big word, bold print, that'll be on the test. And this principle states that the, that the earth processes occurring today are similar to those that occurred in the past. In other words, the way things happen now, long, slow, gradual, natural processes only, is the way it's always happened in the unseen past. 
And he observed that the processes that changed the rocks and land around him were very slow. So he inferred. Now the good word there might be assumed. They had been just as slow throughout Earth's history. <clears throat> he then hypothesized. Another good word for that would be guessed. It took much longer than a few thousand years to form the layers of rock and, the, and to erode the mountains around him. And so guys, please notice Hudson got his conclusion of millions of years. Watch this. Not based on any new evidence. He had the same rocks and the same fossils, but he had a different interpretation based on different worldview that started with the assumption that God's word, a supernatural creation, global flood, that history is wrong, and that man's ideas about the past are a better starting point. Based on the principle of uniformitarianism, that the present is the key to the past. The way things happen now, long, slow, gradual, natural processes only is the way it's always happened in the unseen past. And guys, that fundamental assumption is based in the worldview, the religion of naturalism, humanism, atheism, which basically says matters all that exists, and you can and must explain all things through only natural processes. And these are religious assumptions. He was not being neutral. Neutrality is impossible. Either God's word is true or it's not. Either you stand on God's word or you trust in man's ideas. There is no such thing as neutrality. And notice, religion wasn't kicked out of science at this point. It was just changed to a different religion. Naturalism, humanism became the new dominant religion. And his work had a huge influence on a guy named Charles Lyell, who became the father of modern-day geology. Lyell applied uniformitarianism to the rock layers and fossils, and he basically argued we don't need Noah's flood to explain all the rock layers and all the fossils. He said we can explain all those rock layers and all those fossils with only, and all the canyons with only natural processes. If we just give those natural processes enough time. Same basic ideology based on a naturalistic worldview. And what was his motivation? similar to Hutton's, in this shift away from God's word to man's word being the foundation for our understanding of history? Well, Lyell said it well in a letter to a friend. His goal was to free science from Moses. Get God out of science. Because ultimately, we must really realize this, ultimately, this is not a head issue. It's a heart issue that becomes a worldview issue as a result. The heart issue, a battle over the will. Trust God's word or you become as God and trust man's word instead. And so we see this shift starting really in a, in a powerful way in the modern era, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, away from God's word. Hutton causes many to doubt the need for a creator and a creation roughly 6,000 years ago based on naturalistic ideology. Lyell applies it to geology and causes people to doubt the need for a global flood as described in Genesis 6 through 9. And then along came another guy. And this guy loved Charles Lyell's work. And he loved the idea of uniformitarianism. And this guy had dropped out of medical school. He was actually in school to become a clergyman. But before kind of finalizing that, this guy took a trip on the Beagle as a naturalist and saw the Galapagos Islands and many other things. And he took Lyle's book with him and he applied uniformitarianism to biology. And who was that man? You probably guessed it. Charles Darwin. And Darwin argued, we don't need a creator to explain the diversity of life. Just give natural processes enough time. And we see kind of this clear, progressive rejection of God's word on all things historical, especially about origins. And now, it's the point today where pretty much 
In every, in every scientific field, the secular mindset dominates, and this secular worldview has permeated and, do, and dominates every secular scientific field, every scientific field, and they look at all things through that naturalistic lens. I can show you a thousand quotes like this one here, a couple quick ones. Dr. Scott Todd put it like this from Kansas State University. He said, even if all the data, all of it, pointed to an intelligent designer, even if it all pointed to God, such a guess is excluded from science. Why? It's not naturalistic. Or this famous Harvard geneticist put it like this. He said, it's not that science compels, I'll kind of paraphrase it by the way, it's not that science compels us to believe in materialism, naturalism, atheism, rather it's our prior commitment to materialistic causes that lead to materialistic explanations. And guys, please notice this. Notice the heartbeat he's coming from. And this materialism, bottom sentence, is absolute. Why? We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Not a head issue, say heart issue. And because this mindset, guys, this mindset, write our textbooks. We see our textbooks say stuff like this all the time. Science is restricted to a search for natural causes, for natural phenomenon. Supernatural explanations are outside the bounds of science. Why? Because naturalism, naturalism has become the new dominant religion of our world today, especially the Western world, but actually the entire world in different ways. And you know, Hitler said this. Hitler said, if you tell a lie loud enough and long enough, the people will start to believe it. And we see it happening right before our very eyes. So kind of putting all this together, we really see this foundational shift. Starting in the 1800s, away from God's word to man's word as the ultimate authority. And now that, that secular ideology dominates the scientific community today. They, they have in a sense have been brainwashed with that worldview about the past. And so guys, we should not be surprised that secular scientists get such radically different conclusions about the unseen past and the age of the earth, etc. They're starting with radically different starting assumptions about the unseen past. They're trusting man's ideas. We should be trusting God's word. And guys, today, this naturalistic worldview dominates the scientific community and is applied to every observation that they look at today, including things like radioisotopes. So to give you a quick example of how these assumptions are applied today with isotope dating, I will show you this particular uh, quick little video from the DVD, Check This Out. It gives you a three-minute summary of radiometric dating. And as you watch this, hold on tight, it's a lot of stuff, but really catch the big picture message, uh, wrong assumptions, wrong, con wrong conclusions. Your worldview really matters. Here you go. Nearly every textbook in science magazine teaches that the Earth is billions of years old, and the primary dating method used for determining this is what is called radioisotope dating, or radiometric dating. Now this is a reliable method for measuring absolute ages of rocks and the age of the Earth, right? Huh. First off, many scientists now regard the age of the Earth to be between 4.55 and 4.6 billion years old. Okay, so if this method is reliable and accurate, why the 50 million year discrepancy? That seems like a lot, but let's get into some details here and see what's going on. Keep Keep in mind that there's all kinds of scientific jargon on this topic, and so we'll just present a very straightforward, simplified version of the process. Radiometric dating is the process of estimating the ages of rocks based on the decay of radioactive elements in them. 
Basically, there are certain kinds of atoms in nature that are unstable and spontaneously decay into other kinds of atoms. For instance, uranium will radioactively decay through a series of steps until it becomes the stable element called lead. The original element is called the parent element, and the end result is called the daughter element. Radioisotope dating is commonly used to date igneous rocks, rocks which formed when hot molten material cooled and solidified. The dating clock started when the rock cooled. During the molten state, it is assumed that the intense heat forced any gaseous daughter elements to escape. It is assumed that once the rock cooled, no more atoms escaped, and any daughter element now found in the rock is a result of radioactive decay since that rock formed. The decay rate is measured in terms of half-life. That is, the length of time it takes half of the remaining atoms of a radioactive parent element to decay. Now, of course, that can be measured in a laboratory, and it is assumed that since we know the decay rate, we can calculate backwards and come up with the age of the rock. But is that all there is to it? Here's where it gets tricky. It's true, we can measure a decay rate using observational science, but there's another kind of science that is required to accurately calculate dates for rocks, and that is what we call historical science. Historical science deals with the things in the past, and therefore it cannot be repeated and tested. Dating methods require both types of science, because in order to get accurate rock dates, one would have to accurately know both the decay rate and the initial conditions of the rock sample, right? Since radioisotope dating uses both types of science, we can't directly measure the ages of rocks. There are assumptions involved. For instance, how do we know what the initial conditions were in the rock sample? How do we know the amounts of parent or daughter elements now in that sample haven't been altered by other processes in the past? How does someone know the decay rate has remained constant since the rock formed? The answer is, they don't. Let's simplify here and talk about a typical hourglass. Let's say you walk into a room and you see an hourglass with sand at the top and sand at the bottom, and some sand sprinkling from the top chamber to the bottom. Well, observational science would allow us to see and measure the sand, and then calculate how long the hourglass has been running, right? We could make our sand measurements and then calculate when the hourglass was turned over, right? Well, those calculations could be wrong, because we may have failed to consider some major assumptions. Like, was there any sand at the bottom when the hourglass was turned over? Has any sand been added or taken out of the hourglass? Has the sand always been falling at a constant rate? Since we did not observe the initial conditions when the hourglass started, and we haven't been watching the sand all the time since then, we must make assumptions. All three of those assumptions can affect our time calculations. Now, of course, there's more to understanding all of this, but enough said. Hopefully you got all that. There's a lot of information, I understand. But again, the big picture perspective, notice this. All secular dating methods are based on observations in the present and assumptions about the past. Nothing comes with a label on it. Radioisotopes don't have a label. Rock layers, bones don't come with labels. You must interpret them with a worldview. And again, wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. And this is why the secularists are so wrong on these issues. Notice the secularists, before they engage the evidence, they assume the Bible's history is not true. They assume there was no supernatural creation. There was no global flood. They're explaining only things with only natural processes before they engage the evidence. They're not being neutral. And bear in mind, the evidence does not speak. It must be interpreted with a worldview, and a person speaks based on the worldview and their interpretation. So, all that being said, even if radiometric dating worked perfectly, it would not prove millions of years because of the faulty secular assumptions that drive their wrong interpretations. But guys, it's the opposite of perfect. I can show you hundreds of examples of the inconsistencies of radiometric dating. Here are a few good, quick examples for the sake of time. Using carbon-14 dating, part of a mammoth was dated to be 29,000 years old. 
another part of the same mammoth dated to be 44,000 years old. And that is a very slow birth. Freshly killed seals dated over 1,300 years of age with carbon-14 dating. That's off by more than 1,000%. We're looking at other dating methods like potassium argon dating. This one's often used to date igneous rocks. And that's lava flows that have occurred, they've cooled and turned into stone. And this one is a good one to test. Why? Well, because we know when in history, when certain lava flows occurred, when they cooled and turned into stone. So, we can date those rocks of historical known age with the method to see if it's somewhat accurate. Here are a few examples. I could show you literally hundreds if time permitted. For example, rocks that formed back in 1972. Lava flows occurred, cooled, we saw it, we recorded it. The rocks formed in 1972. They were dated with potassium argon dating to be 210,000 to 490,000 years old. Actual known age at the time they were dated was roughly 30. Rocks that formed back in 1954 over in New Zealand were dated between 3.3 and 3.7 million years old. Actual age at the time of the dating was around 50. Rocks that formed back in 1959 over in Hawaii were dated between 1 and 15 million years of age. Actual known age was roughly 40, and notice the huge margin of error. Or maybe you remember Mount St. Helens erupting back in 1980. And from that eruption, rocks formed. And subsequent eruptions, these rocks formed back in 1980 and past that. Those rocks were dated with potassium argon dating to be roughly 340,000 to 2.8 million years old. Now notice that's a 700% margin of error. And also realize that if you can remember that event, you must be older than you thought you were. Right? These rocks were actually 12 years old when they were dated. And I could just go on and on and on. And then on top of this, did you realize that pretty much the large, the vast majority of dating methods, watch this, even using the secularist own assumptions of uniformitarianism and naturalism, still confirm a very young earth consistent with the biblical worldview and impossible for evolution. A few examples of this. Comets are big, muddy snowballs out in space. And even the biggest comets with the longest orbit shouldn't last more than 100,000 years. Okay, well then the question then comes, why are comets still literally everywhere? Because according to secular thinking, comets formed with our solar system roughly 4.5 billion years ago, and guys, there is no observed source of replenishment. They should have been gone a long time ago, yet they're still all over the place. Makes sense in the biblical worldview, does not make sense in evolutionary thinking. Or the moon. We are losing the moon around two inches per year due to tidal friction and other issues. Now, if the moon is moving away from us, that means in the past it used to be closer, right? Now, if you go back a few million years in time, the moon will be so close to the earth, it will destroy the earth twice a day. I think once would be enough, right? And you go back around a billion years ago, the moon will run into the earth. But a few thousand years will be no problem whatsoever. Or the earth's magnetic field. We've measured this consistently for the past 150 years all over the globe. One of the best dating methods you could possibly use. It's decreased by 10% over the past 150 years. Now, if it's decreasing in strength, that means in the past it used to be stronger. Now, if you do the calculations, apply this and go backwards in time, roughly 7,000 years ago, it would be roughly 32 times stronger than it is today, which would be most likely good for us for a whole bunch of reasons. But keep going back in time, do the exponential increase, 
and a million years ago, the magnetic field would be so strong, it would vaporize the Earth. And I'm pretty sure that would be bad, right? Or carbon-14 dating. Some people say, oh, this proves the Earth is millions of years old. Ironically, it's one of the best evidences of a young Earth. You say, really? Yeah, watch this. It's really neat. So carbon-14 forms in our atmosphere, and it is an unstable element. It changes back to nitrogen-14 fairly quickly by radiometric standards. And then here's the thing. Uh, the plants absorb the carbon-14. Animals eat plants. We eat animals and plants, so all living things contain some carbon-14 inside of them. Actually, all of you watching have some carbon-14 inside of you. That means all of you are slightly unstable, <laughs> right? Some more than others. You can argue about that amongst yourselves. But here's the thing. When a creature dies, it stops taking in carbon-14. And the carbon-14 it does have starts to decay back to nitrogen-14. Now, the carbon-14 decays so quickly that within 100,000 years after the creature's death, there should be no detectable carbon-14. So, anything over 100,000 years of age should have no detectable carbon-14. So this is another really good test, right? What do we find again and again and again and again in pretty much all organic remnants and all the rock layers? Guys, we find large amounts of carbon-14 in pretty much all of those remnants and all those rock layers, top to bottom. We find the carbon-14 in all the major coal seams, upper, middle, and lower. We find carbon-14 in diamonds all the time, and that really blows the secularist mind. Because diamonds are thought to be billions of years old, and there's no way to contaminate a diamond. How is carbon-14 still inside? Right answer? They're just not that old. We find carbon-14 in dinosaur bones all the time. Great confirmation of the biblical timescale. Or other observations. We can measure how fast a desert grows based on present-day observations, based on uniformitarianism, again, the secularist on worldview. And based on the current rate of growth, the largest desert in the world is roughly 4,000 years of age. Now, I've got a question. Why is the largest desert in the world plausibly 4,000 years of age? I've got a good theory about that. I'll come back to that here in a moment. Or, the Great Barrier Reef over in, uh, in Australia, part of this was destroyed back in World War II. Part of the reef was destroyed. And some scientists watched that reef grow back for 20 years, which had to be boring, all right? But it grew back actually so quickly, they said, wow, at this quick rate of growth, this entire reef, based on this rate we observed today, could have grown in less 4,200 years. Huh. Why is the largest coral reef in the world plausibly only 4,200 years of age? I got a theory about that. I'll come back to it. Or the sequoias over in California. Maybe you've seen those before. Gorgeous, magnificent, majestic. It's an amazing thing to see if you get a chance to check those out someday. You really should. There's me and my wife over the sequoias. And then here's me being a tree hugger. That's as close as I get, by the way, to being a tree hugger. But the sequoias are huge, and they have no natural enemies except man and really huge natural catastrophes. Yet none of them, even by secular dating methods, are over 4,000 years of age. Why is that? Why do we find carbon-14 and diamonds? Why is the largest desert plausibly 4,000 years of age? Why are comets still around? Uh, why is the magnetic field the strength that it's at right now? Why do we observe all these observations consistent with the biblical worldview? Guys, here's my theory. I think around 6,000 years ago, God made everything, as his word clearly says. 
And around 44, 4,500 years ago, there was a global flood that wrecked this world, destroyed this world, and reset all those things. And then they began to form like deserts and reefs after the flood. And real science and real observations confirms that again and again and again and again. Understood. If you want to sell a lie, the best way to sell a lie is to incorporate some truth. And that's what we do with rat poison. Rat poison is 99.995% good food. It's the point zero zero five the rat really should be worried about. And guys, in a very similar way, there's lots of really good operational science making amazing advances in technology and medicines in the world around us today. But hear me, it is the poison of uniformitarianism based in the worldview of naturalism that's causing so many today to get the wrong conclusions about the unseen past based in a secular ideology. But guys, here's the thing. Let's be fair and clear. Don't we expect a secular world to have a secular mindset? That's really not that surprising, right? So we should not be surprised that they've embraced that secular ideology. That's their foundation, of course. But here's the bigger problem, infinitely bigger problem, and that is this. Many Christians today and now for multiple generations have swallowed that same poison. Jonathan is here because I would call him an expert on the teaching of progressive creationist Dr. Hugh Ross. In fact, Jonathan's book here called Refuting Compromise specifically deals with all the claims of progressive creationism, uh, the uh, beliefs and teachings of Dr. Hugh Ross and his ministry, Reasons to Believe. Jono, for those who are not familiar, um, obviously we normally don't focus on individuals. In that previous episode I mentioned, I was saying that we need to lovingly win our skeptics over, even when they're hostile. But I did say that we do reserve some harsher language for those who teach or claim to teach from the Bible, but then defer to secular science uh, and undermine the scripture in many areas. And one of those is Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe. So you're an expert on this. Uh, tell us our viewers and listeners some of the things that he holds to that we think are unscriptural. Well first of all he admits that first of all he came to believe the Big Bang and therefore he had to fit Genesis into the Big Bang and claim the days therefore must be long periods of time despite the fact that the day doesn't mean that with evening and morning and a number and the rest of scripture and also uh, because if you have a global flood you don't need the millions of years there's no room for it uh, so of course he makes a flood into a local flood yeah. but all this puts uh, human and animal death before Adam's sin and when you look at the Gospels and the epistles Paul's very clear is because of Adam bringing physical death into the world but Jesus the last Adam brought physical he he died physically for our sins and then he rose physically from the dead so clearly the death that Adam brought must be physical God said you were made from dust now you're going to go back to dust so clearly physical death is the thing in view here right. So you're referring there, of course, to Romans 5.12, which he said uh, refers only to spiritual death and humans and not animals. So in the Rossism uh, theory, you've got animals dying and eating each other for mm -hmm. millions of years. So 
it's a deference to the fossil record, mm -hmm. okay, where we see lots of death. Uh, what's one of the problems with the idea of Romans 5.12 only being spiritual death? Well, it just goes against the character of the gospel itself. I mean, if it's just spiritual death, does that mean that Jesus only had to die spiritually for our sin? Because Romans 5 is contrasting two heads of humanity. You have Adam who brought sin and death with Jesus who brought righteousness and life. So did Jesus only bring spiritual life? Did he only um, die spiritually on the cross? That's the logic of his position. But we're promised future resurrection bodies. Right. Tell me, you know, I often thought about this and I wondered about the new heavens and earth because if it's only spiritual death um, and, you know, the, the flood, which we think was global, so the earth is full of rock layers and fossils which represent global judgment, mm. uh, why would God have to go to such a drastic action of destroying the heavens and earth to make a new heavens and earth if it's just humans that have sinned? Why not just dust off the earth a little bit and, you know, resurrect humans on the earth? Uh, clearly that's not going to be the case, right? It's hard to find anyone who has not heard the often repeated claim that humans and chimpanzees are genetically 98 to 99 percent identical. This has been promoted to the world as proof that humans share a common evolutionary ancestor with chimps. However, recent studies now challenge this claim. For example, Primate evolutionist Todd Prius states, It is now clear that the genetic differences between humans and chimpanzees are far more extensive than previously thought. Their genomes are not 98% or 99% identical. Earlier studies published in the evolutionary scientific literature reported an overall DNA similarity of 98 to 99%. However, large portions of the chimp genome did not align with the human genome and so were excluded from the reported estimates. For instance, the algorithm parameters used in the major milestone publication in Nature reported by the Chimpanzee Sequencing and Analysis Consortium omitted over 100 million DNA letters. When accounting for these large non-alignable regions and other omitted sequence data, the actual chimp-human DNA similarity is significantly lower than the 98 to 99% identity claims. Actually we're saying, oh, 98, 99% of the genomes must be similar between chimp and human. The textbooks still say that, but basically geneticists know that's not correct. What is the actual genetic difference between humans and chimpanzees? This is a question that comes up over and over again in this creation evolution debate. And if it is true we're 98 to 99% genetically identical to the closest evolutionary relatives, evolutionists say, it feels like they're just kissing cousins. Well, let's dig down to what the scientific data actually say. If you look at the 2005 chimpanzee genome paper in Nature, you look at subsequent papers, the bonobo paper, the gorilla paper, the orangutan paper, all of them give a basically a consistent answer, that most of our DNA can be aligned to chimpanzee and vice versa, and in that region that does align, it's about 1-2% to different in terms of single letter differences. But if you say, wait a minute, are there sections of human DNA that fail to align to chimpanzee? Are there sections of chimpanzee that fail to align to human? The answer is yes. And it's far more DNA uh, than is that one or two percent difference. So all of these numbers together, the stuff that aligns and is almost identical, the stuff that can't be aligned at all, you get a number about 85%. What's even more important is what that percentage translates to in terms of absolute differences. 
So an 85% identity, 15% difference in terms of raw DNA letters represents 300 to 400 million single DNA letter differences. That's a massive number. The evolutionary theory claims that humans evolved from a hypothetical chimp-like ancestor roughly six million years ago. This is said to have occurred through a long series of beneficial mutations. In light of the actual genomic differences between humans and chimps, this is simply not genetically feasible. A more accurate chimp-human DNA similarity estimate of 85% represents 300 to 400 million DNA letter differences, an extreme level of genetic discontinuity. This means in order to evolve a chimp-like ancestor into modern humans, hundreds of millions of beneficial mutations need to arise in an ancestral population. The difficulty with accomplishing this has to do with the extremely long waiting time required for establishing even the smallest sets of mutually dependent mutations. Even granting a best case scenario for evolution by generously assuming human and chimp DNA is 99% identical, the remaining 1% would still be a difference of 30 million DNA letters, an impossible genetic barrier for evolution to traverse in 6 million years. Let's assume that it's still only 1%. That's not correct. No one believes that now. But even if uh, to get 1% of the genome different requires 30 million mutations, that's a lot of new information. And when we talked about the waiting time, we were saying, well, eight mutations, eight, waiting for eight specific mutations takes more time than since the time since the Big Bang. So, no, it's not conceivable. You cannot change the program of an ape into the programming for a human in any amount of time. People ask, well, what's the problem? You're saying there's 100 new mutations per person per generation in a big population. That's billions of mutations every generation. Um, what's the problem with getting these, the information that codes for something? Well, the difference is that genetic damage is nonspecific. So, Deleterious mutations can happen in any, anywhere in the genome. There's no specificity. So creating damage is easy, but in the case of a, a manuscript or a, a program or a computer program, it's easy to break them by changing letters. It's really hard to improve them. And you have to wait a really long time for the specific letter to mutate into the specific alternative letter at a specific site to actually create any type of benefit. So waiting time for beneficials is different from waiting time for neutrals. You don't have to wait long for a neutral or for a deleterious. You have to wait a really, really long time if you're waiting for a specific and beneficial one. Waiting for the right mutations to arise and become established in a pre-human population greatly exceeds evolutionary timescales. Leaving evolutionary geneticists acknowledge it is a serious problem for the theory, devastating for the ape-to-man scenario. Population geneticist Michael Lynch confesses in the Journal of Molecular Biology and Evolution. A central problem in the evolutionary theory concerns the mechanisms by which adaptations requiring multiple mutations emerge in natural populations. Lynch's calculations suggest the length of time required for just two specific mutations to become established in a pre-human population is over 200 million years, well beyond the six million year time span 
during which an ape-like creature is said to have evolved into man. Other studies reporting in scientific literature show similar results. Evolutionary geneticists Durrett and Schmidt of Cornell University report in the Annals of Applied Probability that the average waiting time to form a slightly longer DNA sequence of eight specific mutations is on the order of 650 million years. But this estimate is incomplete. When accounting for random loss due to a well-established principle known as genetic drift, the actual waiting time should be a hundredfold longer roughly 65 billion years. This is four times longer than the reputed age of the universe, assuming a Big Bang singularity 13.7 billion years ago. At best, all evolution can hope to accomplish in the prescribed six million year time span is the formation of a tiny DNA sequence, no more than a few genetic letters in length, totally incapable of producing a single new gene. Modern genetics has demonstrated that it is impossible for humans to have evolved from a chimp-like ancestor via random mutations. It is an unbridgeable genetic gap for evolution to traverse, even given billions of years. If humans did not evolve from ape-like creatures, then where did we come from? The Genesis account of creation states that God made Adam and Eve not as mythical beings, but as the literal, historical ancestors of all living people. They were the first two human beings created, with all humans descending from this first couple. From a purely genetic standpoint, is it scientifically feasible that all humans descended from a single mother and a single father? Many insist this is absurd, and yet the genetic evidence for a literal Adam and Eve is inside each one of us. It's found in our DNA. In 1987, a milestone paper was published in the journal Nature by leading evolutionary geneticists who announced the results of a mitochondrial DNA analysis. Geneticists from the University of California found that all humans are descended from one woman thought to have lived in Africa 100,000 to 200,000 years ago. Their results sent shockwaves throughout the scientific community and called for a major rewrite of the evolutionary view of human origins to accommodate the new data. The revision gave rise to the now widely accepted out of Africa theory. Proponents of the theory couldn't help but notice its uncanny resemblance to the biblical Eve. In acknowledgement of this, they gave the genetic mother of us all the name mitochondrial Eve. According to the evolutionary perspective, mitochondrial Eve was an unnamed woman who evolved out of Africa from a Homo erectus population of ape men. Not long after the first mitochondrial DNA studies revealed a single mother of us all, evolutionary geneticists found similar results when analyzing sequences on the male Y chromosome. In 1997, a team of researchers from Stanford University reported to the American Society of Human Genetics that all men inherited their Y chromosome from a single male ancestor. The sequencing of thousands of Y chromosomes from diverse people groups living around the world has revealed an overall lack of Y chromosome diversity. All men share the same Y chromosome plus a small number of mutations consistent with a single male ancestor of the human race. 
Once again, evolutionary geneticists couldn't help but give the father of us all a biblical name, Y-chromosome Adam. Just as they did with mitochondrial Eve, evolutionists interpret Y-chromosome Adam to be an evolved ape-man from Africa that lived sometime around 100,000 to 200,000 years ago. The evolutionary community acknowledges that there is a literal Y-chromosome Adam and there is a literal mitochondrial Eve. They say it's clear that all of the Y chromosomes on this planet trace back to a single individual who didn't live so long ago. The Y chromosomes only passed on through the male, right? Father to son. Well, the mitochondrial chromosome is only transmitted through the female. And that chromosome also, all the genetics agree, all people on the planet get their mitochondria from a woman who lived not so long ago and it's uncontested. And it turns out initially uh, the evolutionists said, yeah, but it looks from our estimates of how long ago those individuals lived that they didn't live in the same time span. Now actually that they've, done, that they've reworked their numbers, they're always reassessing their time scales. Uh, they're Adam and Eve, the mitochondrial Eve and the Y chromosome Adam, they are in the same time span. There are two fundamental differences between the Adam and Eve of the Bible and the evolutionary interpretation of mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosome Adam. The first difference has to do with time, and the second has to do with population size. The Genesis account indicates Adam and Eve lived recently, just thousands of years ago, and that they were the only two people alive at the time of their creation. The evolutionary model claims they lived around 100,000 to 200,000 years ago and belonged to a hominin population of 10,000 individuals. But as you will see, it's not the genetic data that conflicts with the biblical account of Adam and Eve. The conflict comes from inferences about time and population size. Evolutionary geneticists estimate that genetic Adam and Eve lived around 100,000 to 200,000 years ago using a method known as the molecular clock. The technique relies on the assumption that mutations accumulate in certain regions of the genome at a constant rate over deep time. Evolutionary scientists have to further assume that humans evolved from a chimp-like ancestor roughly 6 million years ago in order to calibrate the molecular clock. Both claims are problematic and have been called into question by the genetics community. Distinguished evolutionary geneticist David Reich of Harvard confesses in the publication Nature, the fact that the clock is so uncertain is very problematic for us. It means that the dates we get out of genetics are really quite embarrassingly bad and uncertain. Scientists are now using a more straightforward approach to determine mutation rates that do not require ape-to-man evolutionary assumptions. It involves directly measuring mutation rates in the present, comparing parents and offspring known as the pedigree method. When comparing DNA sequences between parents and children, the measured mutation rates are typically 10 to 20 times higher than those inferred based on assumptions of ape-to-man evolution. When the molecular clock is calibrated using the empirically measured mutation rates, both mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosome Adam lived just thousands of years ago. In discussing the age of mitochondrial Eve, evolutionary scientists in trends in genetics acknowledge this discrepancy. 
mtDNA datasets often exhibit anomalous patterns. One of these anomalies is the discrepancy between mtDNA mutation rates observed in evolutionary timescales, for example, in dating the divergence between two species and those measured within family pedigrees. If the high mutation rates seen in some human pedigrees were used to calculate the age of our most recent female common ancestor, she would have lived just 6,000 years ago, a date more consistent with biblical Eve than mitochondrial Eve. There's a long-standing debate and argument in genetics, and that deals with the difference between what's called the phylogenetic mutation rate and the genealogical mutation rate. If you look at a family, you can count the differences between the people and you say, oh, they've had some mutations. And you can actually calculate a mutation rate over time in today's time, in known time. Right now, we know what the mutation rate is. But the evolutionary community doesn't like to use that rate because it's too fast. They use what's called the phylogenetic mutation rate. That is, they look at the difference between humans and chimpanzees, not the real rate, but the differences, and they say, oh, we've been separated for so many millions of years. And when I was an undergraduate, that difference was three million years. Now it's six million years, 6.5 million years. Some people are arguing for 13 million years because mathematically they're having a hard time dealing with this. Take the differences between humans and chimpanzees in some gene, like mitochondria, Y chromosome, or something like that. Divide it by the time that separates us, six million years. You get a very slow mutation rate. But if you look at the people alive today, count up the number of differences between them and divide by the time since their ancestor, maybe their great-great-grandfather or something like that, you're going to get a mutation rate much faster. When we use that rate, Adam and Eve fall into the biblical time frame. So when we use today's science, measurable science, laboratory stuff we know is true, Adam and Eve are biblical. It's typically assumed that Adam and Eve would have had no genetic variants, no genetic diversity. However, there's no reason to assume they were created as nearly identical clones. If Adam and Eve were created with built-in diversity for traits such as skin color, all of the different looking people groups could easily arise in a biblical time frame. There would be no reason to wait millions of years for the slow accumulation of mutations if the diversity was encoded in their genomes right from the beginning. If Adam and Eve were heterozygous, as we would reasonably expect, extensive genetic diversity would quickly arise simply through sexual reproduction, which reshuffles pre-existing variation to produce different combinations of traits. This idea that God creates an initial pair with differences between them and within them. We'll call that term, the technical term is heterozygosity. So this is an idea that has massive consequences in modern genetics and virtually all of our genetic discussions. It also provides a convenient explanation, a very plausible explanation for how you get all the ethno-linguistic differences that we see today. Humans are considered one species and we can produce variety in a single generation. So if a dark-skinned Sudanese person marries a light-skinned Finnish individual, their children will be an intermediate skin tone and have features from both parents. And if you had an Australian Aborigine who marries a Han Chinese and they had children, 
And so then the offspring of these two mixed marriages had children. They could produce a whole diversity of individuals. Why is that? Because people today still have heterozygosity. They have less heterozygosity than what I'm saying Adam and Eve had. In other words, Adam and Eve could have produced in their many children every version of human that we see today. Once you have an original pair, original population, an original set of eight if we're talking about the flood, that has heterozygosity, you can explain people groups just like that. A striking example of built-in genetic variation can be seen in the example of twins born from mid-brown parents. Mother Kylie Hodgson and father Remy Horder gave birth to twins Remy and Kian, who appeared racially different. The two-tone fraternal twins shared the same womb and were born a minute apart. What most people would typically see as racial differences arose in a single generation due to gene segregation. Just like people living today, one can reasonably expect Adam and Eve to have had a large pool of genetic variation built in to their genomes. Prior to modern genetics, evolutionary scientists claimed that there were fundamentally different races of humans that evolved in diverse parts of the world over a long period of time. This model was known as the multi-regional hypothesis. This perception changed with the advent of DNA sequencing which revealed that all human beings are remarkably similar genetically. It is now well established among the scientific community that all people, regardless of their skin color or ethnicity, are 99.9% .9 genetically identical. The so-called racial features that we tend to focus on are essentially only skin deep, reflecting trivial differences in our genetic material. Physical traits like eye shape and melanin production amount to a minuscule 0.012% difference in our DNA. This means that regardless of our cultural differences, genetically, we are all part of one big human family. And how long has this been known for? Well, before we even talk about how long this has been known for, let's explain to the audience what do we mean by dinosaur soft tissue. You see, hmm. sometimes when we open the scientific literature and they talk about soft tissue, they're talking about um, soft body parts in, in animals that have now become fossilized and mineralized. Mm. But that's not what we're talking about here, are we? What, what, I what? think we're talking about things that actually remain after all the minerals have been dissolved, and that's the issue, as well as things like proteins and DNA that certainly shouldn't be lasting millions of years, but they have been found in fossils supposedly millions of years old. The paradigm governs really everything that you think about a particular subject. It provides this global framework. So this room, for example, we've got so-called mini-computers here, but really they're not mini at all in terms of our current paradigm. Yeah, today, right? Yeah, this. The, yeah. <laughs> right? So really, to understand this question of origins, you really need to begin by looking at the governing paradigms, the two major views that we currently have about the history of life and the history of the universe. And what are those? On the one hand, we have the conventional paradigm. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the view that the universe began a long time ago in a very simple state and by strictly physical processes developed gradually and continuously into all the complexity that we see today. Galaxies, stars, planets, cells, animals, human beings. It's one long continuous story from a very simple beginning to today. 
That's one view. The second view we can call, let's say, the historical genesis paradigm. Strikingly different. First of all, you've got recency, right? This is not happening over a very long time. It's happening relatively recently. And it begins in a state of functionality where it's working already. You've got organisms present. They're doing what they need to do. You've got planets and solar systems already operating, brought into existence, really within a very short span of time, simultaneously. Homo sapiens is present right there, right at the start. So those two views contrast really at every point, and their key features are also very different. It's not hard to see there's a radical difference between those two in terms of time. Right. What else do you see is contrasted here between these two paradigms? To me, the most striking difference is what kinds of causes are operating. So in the conventional paradigm, it's physics running the show. Physics through chemistry, influencing biochemistry and then biology. All the change that's happening is coming bottom up from fundamental, undirected, mindless physical processes. They're doing everything. In the historical genesis view, underlying everything is mind, is intellect. A purposeful intelligence is bringing things into existence. That's a deep, that's a profound difference. Another key difference is the actual sequence of events. So in the conventional paradigm, you have a gradual process whereby things are constructed beginning on what came before. So ultimately, really, you start with you know, elementary particles, hydrogen and helium, the heavier elements, galaxies are formed, planets, and so forth, leading eventually to the first cell. It's a continual process of gradual transformation. With the historical genesis paradigm, you have a transcendent intelligence, God acting in space and time to bring things into existence, in a sense, discontinuously. And that pattern gives you discrete events in space and time that aren't strictly flowing one from the other. So you have the creation, you have the fall, which is a catastrophic event that affects all of the creation in a radical way. So again, you see a striking difference in the narrative that one would tell depending on your starting point. And lastly, and maybe this is the most important, what is the whole of reality? Is it strictly physical? Are we, you know, meat machines that will decay into nothing upon our death? Or is there a spiritual dimension to our existence that is eternal, that has eternal value? And really, that final point is the one I think that's most decisive because it ends up affecting how we treat each other. And science is one thing, but our moral sense, our, our relationship with God. We can't have a relationship with God if we are strictly physical creatures. 